Hello, Docolos and Doculets. The Docagues and Doculets. Welcome to another thrilling episode of the Documenteers, the podcast about documentaries where we parse through, laugh at them sometimes, review them, and hit them with the Herzog Hammer. Herzog Hammer being our rating system. I am your primary host, Bob Sham, for this episode this week. Akil, one of our newest documenteers, returns, and we get more into the nerdy side of things. Akil and I, we grew up loving comic books, and you know everyone's got a nerd interest. All this nerd stuff is huge now, and this movie is about a nerd thing that failed at a time when it was actually very hard to get nerd shit done. We're talking about the film, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? Yeah, that's the full title, by director John Schnepp, partially funded by Kickstarter. And it is about a Tim Burton-directed Superman movie that starred Nicolas Cage that never happened. And it features a nerd angle, there is a nerd interest angle, but there's also a true Hollywood story angle, too. There is a little bit of a discussion. The, co the comparisons and contrasts of where we're at today, it seems like all the movies are comic book movies now. And But this, which took place starting in 96, was like pulling teeth to get anything done. And yeah, nerd culture, it's... I can't deny that there's some of it. I love all those Marvel movies. I do like comic book movies. Those characters have been around for generations, but admittedly, I'm getting a little bored with a lot of the pop culture saturation out there. I'm a little worried that there's not enough originality out there. It's all these people getting on podcast mics talking about shit they, they've never made, and it's getting so tight. Oh, wait, am I talking about myself? Oh, okay. Well, you can contact us at places like an email, documenteerspodcast at gmail.com. We have social networks that... Admittedly, I'm not great at but I'm trying to get the ball rolling on them. Seek us out on there at Twitter. We've got a Facebook fan page that Angela runs. Uh, Instagram's probably the hottest. Uh, help me help me learn how to use Twitter, please. I'd really appreciate it. Also, five stars and review on iTunes. We don't want your money. We want your five stars, and we want a review. And you can definitely review us on iTunes and give us five stars on any app you listen to, really. We'd really appreciate it, and we love your support. We don't want your money. We just want a minute of your time. And also subscriptions and recommendations and telling all your film nerd friends about this cool podcast about documentaries. And we we do want to seriously go through these movies, but we also want to have a good time at the same time. So, yeah, I love you. I just wanted to say that. I love you. Let's get into this movie, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened by John Schnepp. Keep on docking. Now, here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Nerds, geeks, sweaties. Look how far we've come. We rule the world. But it wasn't always this way. Let's go back to a time when there was no comic book cinematic universe. <laughs> it's you. 
That was iced coffee. What if I had just a bunch of Yoohoo in a mason jar? I don't know what you do when I'm not here, man. Do you like Yoohoo? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I haven't had it in I don't know how many years, but I'm not opposed to drinking a Yoohoo. Like, it's a Yoohoo. I drink them more when I was a kid, and I always drink them very quickly. Like, it, a Yoohoo wasn't a sip thing to me. No. I would chug it. Well, I never drank Yoohoo as a kid. But it's fucking chocolate water. Basically. Is Yoohoo all over the country? I'm asking you these questions like you <laughs> like, should have. And I have no reason to think that you would Well, have. based on my experience with Yoohoo and traveling around the country, no, I'm pretty sure it's it's pretty well broadcast. Do people like Yoohoo? I don't think I ever see anyone drinking. It's still around. Somebody's yeah. drinking it. Somebody's drinking yeah. it. Well, it's not one of those things you just like stand outside and chug. Is it I one mean, of it's the, not it's Yoohoo. Like yeah, you, yeah. you don't drink Yoohoo to quench your thirst. Well, when you drink a Yoohoo, you want to show it off to the whole parking lot of the gas station. <laughs> yeah, like pose just right, logo <laughs> out for anyone walking in. And when you finish it, you do a very audible. Ah. <laughs> Is that only that's the correct response? Drinking Yoohoo, <laughs> I really don't. It's probably gonna be a belch or a like a kind of internal. Oh. I think I've had maybe six Yoohoo's in my entire life. Yeah, they're they're not something I'm like, I just got to get a you. <laughs> uh, you know, my favorite soda is a soda. I don't know if this is across the country. I'd love for listeners to, you can let me know at documenteerspodcast at gmail.com. But squirt. Soda squirt. Yeah, that's like the, uh, kind of like a mix between a Sprite and a Mountain Dew. It's grapefruit soda. Yeah. It's specifically it's grapefruit. It's like Fresca. Is Fresca a grapefruit? Fresca's a grapefruit soda. That tastes weird to me. It tastes totally different. They do. I think Squirt's got some lemon limeness to oh, it. Yeah. Whereas Fresco is just more of like a. This is a grapefruit soda. I hope this that soda is around the country as well. It could I'm be a sure it's regional. I feel like there's it's a lot regional. of southern sodas you only get in the south. What's the one? We, what's the uh, our version of Mellow Yellow? The is it Dewdrop, Sundrop, Sundrop is totally Sundrop. Regional. I think that yeah. is. I mean, that's well. out of Pulaski. I remember as a kid. Pulaski is the whole oh. Sundrop and the KKK. <laughs> Pass up Sundrop. <laughs> Go for a squirt. I'm not saying the Sundrop isn't they like anywhere related company. to the KKK. They could be. Is Sundrop related? Sundrop's going to be tweeting. Sundrop is. No, you're supposed to say Sundrop is allegedly connected <laughs> to the KKK. As long as you say allegedly, you can say whatever you want. Maybe Roseanne was drinking some Sundrop. At 2 a.m. in the and morning, Ambien. she tweeted. Oh, yeah. Didn't she say she took an Ambien? Yeah. And my my grandma did. used to take Ambien and would randomly call people. But it wasn't ever anything offensive. It was She was just muttering nonsense and no one knew what she was but talking about. Did you see about. the tweet that uh, whatever the pharmaceutical company that makes uh, Ambien, oh, yeah. did you see their tweet about the side effects <laughs> not including racism? I was like, well played, Ambien. Yeah, I was trying to think back to the history of Roseanne after this because that original show back in the day. I love that show. That's one. That, I, I still think it's one of the best sitcoms yeah. that ever was. And, and I'm see, hoping that it doesn't get because it's, it's been in rotation on I don't know Antenna TV or yeah. UT, something. One of those broadcasts is it UHF or VHF? That's the yeah. non-network major network, but it's probably been pulled at this point. John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf, those are amazing actors right there. Yeah. It sucks that Roseanne just burned the whole shit for everyone. Well, I mean, for them, though, their careers are going to be fine. I yeah. Mean, they're actually, I mean, Laurie Metcalf's won an Oscar at this point. Yeah, like, she's a lady. Bird, she, yeah, right? the fact that she even came back to do this show yeah. was kind of surprising to me. But I mean. But she's fantastic. She's one of the oh, most yeah. underrated actors out there. Yeah, hands down. 
I was glad she finally won an Oscar. I think yeah. she's won a Tony too. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. And she won. Didn't she win Emmys for Roseanne? I felt like she did. I I would not be surprised. I don't like track the award stuff, yeah. but she should because Anne Jackie's one of the best characters. They should. I mean, they there's little memes out about just calling it Jackie. Yeah, just killing off Roseanne's character. Yeah, and just, I would watch an Anne uh, Jackie totally. spinoff yeah. for sure. Yeah, boy, Anne Jackie's been through some shit. Remember Fisher? Oh, that motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> well, Roseanne's always she was a funny person. She kind of always instinctively had that angle, but she always was kind of weird. There was there was a point where she was really new agey or something. Maybe not yeah. long after the show ended, and I think I mean correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a while, but I heard once that she made a claim on camera that she was, she remembers being beaten or molested when she's like one. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's like, no one remembers that. No one remembers being one, but it seemed odd. Like she would just make claims. Yeah. And I know she said that she has publicly said like multiple times that she's bipolar. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Oh yeah. She seems to also be very susceptible to changes. Like sweeping lifestyle changes. <laughs> At one point, she owned. She had a reality show for a bit. Yeah, uh, and she owned some kind of nut farm, like a, like a pistachio like, or farm, was, or yeah, yeah, something like that. And then she had a daytime talk show for a short period of time. Mm. I think I don't even think it lasted a season. Roseanne eighty eight would not be up on a fucking nut no, farm. No, <laughs> so it's like, what's going on? And there, there is something in her head that's yeah. just that's turning her life on a dime. And, and I think. But it's probably turned on a dime several times. Oh yeah, between, since then and now. I mean, if you look at just all the crazy stuff she did, yeah, back then, yeah. But squirt. <laughs> I know now the title of the drink. I think the the notion of the squirt it has different <laughs> ramifications in modern language. But this soda is called squirt. I want to see commercials for squirt. That will never happen. And I want squirt fans to own up. <laughs> To how much they love squirt. It's hard to find squirt. I, all I'm saying is, like, there's a lot of squirters out there. <laughs> and they've got a soda they love. I dated one many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing time in my life. God bless Texas. <laughs> yeah, man. We always know you're doing a good job, right? Yeah, I guess. God bless America. <laughs> United Squirters of America. <laughs> we are talking about a movie that I saw about when it came out. I noticed this is partially funded by Kickstarter. Did you contribute to the Kickstarter? I did not. I totally would have given mine to the Veronica Mars movie. This movie, it pulled me in a couple of directions. I did think there was a lot of good things about this movie. I did too. There are things that I liked a lot. Yeah. And then there were other things that I stereotypically don't like that maybe I don't think this movie did it in the worst way possible, but still enough that it kind of annoyed me a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. I got a lot of questions for it, but I've got some compliments as well. There's actually a thousand stories a lot like this, but I think because this involves a property that's so iconic, it's just one that makes itself come out. And that iconic property that we can all think of, even your grandma, if you say Superman, like Superman will pop in your grandma's head and it'll pretty much be Superman like that everyone knows. I still got a speeding bullet. But this is the weird story of a Superman film that never got made. This is a documentary about a movie failing. So it's not just a documentary about these people's perspectives on a character, which is interesting. But it's also about how difficult a movie can be made. And this movie is coming through a transitional period where 
we got these Batman movies and now and we're about to we're not quite at the X-Men Spider-Man era that kicks off all the superhero movies we get today. Yeah, it's that we, weird in-between era where no one really knew where we, they wanted to keep doing those kinds of movies. Even there was occasionally superhero-themed movies in the 90s. The era we're in now is, like, separated from that time because I guess your Spider-Man and the X-Men movie kind of showed it kind of coming to the next level visually. And, and traditionally, comic book properties would go through a lot of rigmarole and often would just fall apart. People messing with licenses and options. Oh, and I used to read so many articles in Wizard Magazine yeah. about comic book properties that were being brought to the either television or to the big screen that never happened. Yeah. <laughs> For years, James Cameron was supposed to direct a Spider-Man movie. Yeah, I remember that. And I think that took a long time for it to ultimately just tank. In this movie, I remember reading about the behind the scenes of this movie through Wizard Magazine, the comic magazine, because I love comics. I have all my life. And you do, too. And so we, I was about a teenager, you're a little older. So we were reading about all this shit. So when Kevin Smith was writing a script for a movie called Superman Lives, we were reading about him talking about writing the script for this movie at that time. And you also got to understand the context of where Kevin Smith was as far as the mindsets of people like us. Yes. I mean, this was like the comic book nerd that made good kind of thing. I mean, at that point he had made what Mallrats, uh, Mallrats, Clerks, Clerks, Chasing Amy. This guy, I think there's a post-Chasing Amy. I think he was actually shooting Chasing... Was it Chasing Amy or was it... I think there's a post-Chasing Amy pre-Dogma. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he was very new to the game, and I think Chasing Amy delivered a lot of buzz. We we're This is about around his peak time. Yeah. And I think his... I mean, he's at a successful place now. He's kind of established his own right. corner of the universe. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but at this point, this was big news for comic book nerds. Yes. Like, wow, this is a guy who actually gets it writing a script for what will hopefully be a really awesome movie. Because they were just coming off the Quest for Peace at that point. When was Quest for Peace made? 87, I think. 88. Okay. It was late 80s. But we'd had, like, Batman and shit. Which um, this dude, John Peters, he's the producer who was involved in the attempt of Superman lives... That guy. He was, <laughs> <laughs> he was involved in those Batman movies, the Tim Burton ones. And I don't know if he produced the Joel Schumacher ones. He didn't claim it if he did. Why would he? Yeah, right. <laughs> he seemed, <laughs> you got a feeling this guy uh, edits a lot of his life. And he's not. Oh, yeah. And he's pretty comfortable talking about himself a lot. This dude's like a stereotype of Hollywood scumbaggery. He is. I actually know quite a bit about John Peters because of my love for Barbara Streisand. So I've oh, read right. a lot about this guy through learning about her and Bob. He was her stuff. hairdresser. His, I, I mean, his story is pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> I mean, he literally went from her hairdresser to dating her to using her connections to start to connect with people in Hollywood and started producing movies. Wow. He did a lot of really successful movies. He's too. really good at using people yeah. like uh, a walkway. Yeah, but he has that reputation of being the stereotypical brass balls, like aggressive Hollywood producer yeah. kind of guy. Who admittedly is not a big reader. Can John Peters read? That's the, <laughs> that's the first thing that popped into my mind. John Peters doesn't have time to read because he's too busy obsessing over his own masculinity <laughs> and the masculinity of everyone around him. It's uh, like a big theme in this guy's yeah. brain. I think maybe it comes from... He used to be a hairdresser, so he feels like now he's overcompensating for hairdressing, Probably. I guess. We can talk about it. That, I mean, 
I can tell you some stuff about John Peters, but look, we're talking about the documentary <laughs> from 2015, The Death of Superman Lives. What happened? I John Schnepp. I got a problem right one with this movie. The title. The title. Yeah. <laughs> you got a good title right here. It says The Death of Superman Lives. That's punchy. What happened? <laughs> Actually did not realize that that was part of the official title until I rewatched it. This is the second time I've seen it. I saw it around when it first came out. And to me, it's just called The Death of Superman Lives. But yeah, when finding it, <laughs> there's like a colon. What happened? <laughs> Boy, this title's too good. Can we add something to it? That makes it, that dumbs it down just let's, a little Let's punch bit. that up a little bit. Team guy its own font. John Schnepp, he's, a, he's been an actor. He's a producer, a director. He's messed with a lot of Adult Swim stuff. Has done a lot of work on the show, Metalocalypse. Love pretty show. Pretty prolific on that one. Yeah, I love that one too. He also messes with animation and shit too. So we did a geek movie called Nintendo Quest. about a, It was a Kickstarter movie about a guy who's looking for all the Nintendo games. And his buddy who created the movie felt the need to formally establish a setup narrative for it in front of like stands of Nintendo merchandise to be like, I'm going to explain what Nintendo is. I don't think this movie has that problem, but it was kind of weird in that regard because it's a Kickstarter movie and the people who are giving you money already know about Nintendo. So why are you right. explaining The this? only people who are going to watch that documentary <laughs> yeah. are people who are obsessed with Nintendo. And even me who, like, I like video games. I wouldn't say I'm obsessed, obsessive. But, well, maybe certain games. I'm but you don't need, I mean, you don't yeah, need yeah. a history of. But I kind of automatically knew the history because I was alive through, right. you know, three-fourths of it. But but he kind of does that, too. John Schnepp also fills the need. It's like the geek style of documentary filmmaking is that the director has to get in front of the camera and be like, so these are the times that were going on here and during this time here. And now let's get into the movie. <laughs> Let me set up the narrative. Now, Schnapp is, uh, he's all in this movie. I don't know if it's as uh, annoying as the Spurlockian method of doing it. You see John Schnapp throughout the movie talking to certain people, and they're side by side in a room, and John Schnapp is in frame talking to certain people. Not as much with John Peters, I noticed that the camera was just kind of a lot on yeah. his face, on the his top half of his body. But with the Tim Burton interviews, it seemed like John Schnepp was like, yeah, I'm in the room with Tim Burton. So every one yeah, of absolutely. those, every one of those shots were like full Schnepp and Burton. There are hardly no shots of just Burton. Him and Kevin Smith lost side by sides. Mm, yeah. And Tim Burton. So you can tell that he's uh, he, he's a, approaching this from a fanboy yes. point of view. And sometimes the fanboys are the ones that are going to get things like this done. But sometimes the fanboys need to kind of like chill. <laughs> need to chill a little bit. Because you got this story to tell. And, you do, and he does have the elements to tell this story. And this is a good story. In terms of what happens, it's, a, it's one of those weird Hollywood stories involving an iconic character. But we see him interviewing fans and they're ragging on the concept of a Superman movie where Nicolas Cage is playing Superman because that's what this movie is going to be a Nicolas Cage Superman where he dies he gets killed by the villain Doomsday he comes back and I think Brainiac's supposed to be in it and shit this is <laughs> where <laughs> we're going really a lot of characters in yeah it. this different is phases of the script rewrites John Schnapp's interviewing fans and they're all ragging on the concept of this movie like this would have been a bad terrible movie actually i i will admit 
the beginning of the movie because he specifically talks to he, I guess he finds three fans at a con each of them wearing a different kind of Superman t-shirt mm-hmm. and you got one person who is very much Nick Cage's would be horrible I mean, that movie so glad it never got made there's one guy who thinks it would have been an awesome idea I would love to see it and then there's one guy sort of kind of interested it sounded <laughs> like it would be kind of weird but he's a little bit interested in seeing it just from he a went, curiosity standpoint. He went with the Goldie Blocks and the Three Bears. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Strategy of yeah. like, let's see the fan perspective. And then got the prerequisite, you know, pose of all three of them together. And he gets Jimmy Palmiotti on it, I, which is, wow, that's huge. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm kidding. I like Jimmy Palmiotti. With Joe Casada not available. Like, if, you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't read comics for like 30 years, the Jimmy I guess you. How would you know who Jimmy Palmiotti was? You wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. But no. he's a prominent inker and writer. Yeah, he's actually been co-writing Harley Quinn for years. Yeah, it was, it was Amanda Connor, I think. But he invented. Yeah, what's his name? Ash is that Ash. the character? Well, I think he co-created. Co-created with Asada. Yeah, Joe Casada, yeah. now chief creative officer of Marvel, former editor in chief. Yeah, former comic book artist. Well, he's still he is, still does from time to time. Jimmy Palmiotti says he thought it would have been cool, a cool idea. And he cites my favorite David Lynch movie as an example of why Nick Cage would have been interesting. Uh, the movie Wild at Heart. Look like a clown in that stupid jacket. This is a snakeskin jacket. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. Asshole. Which I like that movie quite a bit. It is my favorite David Lynch movie. I don't think I have ever actually seen a David Lynch movie before. Well, if you ever want to walk down that weird road, just let me know. He's you just know. one of those directors where, yeah, I know who he is. At some point, I'll get around to watching something, surely. And Grant Morrison is in this movie. He's one of my favorite writers. He talks about the idea of Superman Lives and how it was reminiscent of a lot of the more over-the-top qualities of comic book movies at the time. The weird Batman, the Dion Batman of the later years. They included the mask in that clip, which I thought was actually a, a well-done comic book movie, personally. I, With I my think, limited knowledge of the mask, I never really read the mask. I maybe watched that a couple of times. I don't know. I don't know if that holds up. The John Schnepp contribution he can identify that the mask is yes a comic book movie right it could be played into an example of it and i think that's kind of what the fanboy the good part of the fanboy aspect of it is you can make sure that the references to things are correct the sources are cited properly or right. whatever because most people wouldn't get that reference they wouldn't know that the mask was originally a comic book character they talk about how when brian singer was making superman returns which seemed like a spiritual sequel to the old christopher reeves movies I like that spiritual sequel. I didn't write that down. (laughs) (laughs) When people would rag on the costume of the outside underpants that Superman, the red underpants that Superman would wear, that Brian Singer would pull out a picture of Nicolas Cage, and it looks like a a Polaroid quality, wearing the Superman test suit, and he looks like half stone. (laughs) My favorite pictures of those test pictures are... He looks high as fuck, and he's just wearing this Superman suit that's super sleek. Yeah, and like the like the S is like sharper, and it's not even. I mean, it's obviously it's it's a preliminary test suit, but like it's it's not even fully colored up at the top. You can see where it's kind of torn and frayed around yeah. the, the neckline kind of deal. It's a horrible picture. It really <laughs> is. It's like the worst possible picture they could have taken. Then Grant Morrison tells the story of Superman, the last son of Krypton. Imagine a distant planet 
in a far-off star system, light years from here. We've never seen it in our telescopes. We know nothing about them, but they look a bit like us. A star that's in the last days of its life, and imagine that their planet is under threat of destruction. And those fantastic scientists say that there's only one thing they can do, and that's to send a child out into space who might carry the physical attributes and mental attributes that these people have engendered over the centuries. And imagine then that this child coming to Earth suddenly is gifted with powers that come from the great society that, that gave birth to him. And he not only brings those powers, but he brings a morality. Just imagine what he could do to our world with the aim of changing it. Oh, that beautiful Scottish brogue, <laughs> yeah. Morrison recounting the tale of Superman. <laughs> I love it. I can listen to him do that. He's also into like chaos magic and ritual magic and stuff like that. So he kind of looks at all these characters like sigils and stuff. And and if they were weird at a certain point in the fifties, he would somehow find a way to make that relevant in the modern times when he's writing a comic book. He's also a very controversial writer. A lot of people have been split on him, and he's written so much stuff that. There are Grant Morrison stories that I'm like, eh, that one didn't quite work. Yeah. Did you dig his Batman stuff? Yes, I did like Batman. See, I did not, but I loved his Superman stuff. All-Star Superman. Yeah. If you've never read a Superman comic, his All-Star Superman that he did with the artist Frank Quietly, that's some of the best Superman yeah. comics out there. I mean, he told me he pulled all the weird Silver Age stuff yeah. from Superman back in the 50s and made it work in modern times. And the Frank Quietly art. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Takes it to the next level. Yeah. There's a classic style intro into this. Had the old Superman letters coming in and out. I appreciated that. I didn't mind that much. I actually thought it was kind of fun. Apparently, he, he paid an actor to dress up like a silhouette, like Superman. Like a silhouette of a guy playing Superman walking around a graveyard. And, uh... All right. It's a Kickstarter documentary, man. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? Look, the Stuart, budget was limited. <laughs> that's what Stuart said when I was hating Nintendo. So I'm like, you know what? I don't care. At first, yeah, it's just for the, the payers. But these movies stick around and other people are going to grab onto them. And you either do it good or you don't. But I'm saying I didn't hate it. My favorite part of the opening credits, and actually it's a thing throughout the the whole documentary because they use that actor repeatedly is his face is always in shadow. Like you don't know it's not Nicholas Cage. <laughs> we don't need you to hide his face. Yeah. We're assuming the fact that Nicholas Cage is not in the documentary or in the credits. This guy's probably not Nicholas Cage. I thought it was. And I'm only just now finding out. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Fuck. <laughs> Kevin Smith, he was tapped to write a Superman movie. And he starts basically writing a Christopher Reeves Superman movie, pretty much. And then he meets a guy named John Peters, who was involved in the the big, uh, the first two Tim Burton Batman movies. But he was negotiating the rights to Superman because apparently the film rights had come up. And Warner Brothers, for a moment, did not have the rights. So he wanted to set up and make a Superman movie. And he said he wanted it kind of like based around, I guess, John Peters' approaches a lot of the movies that he saw as a kid, like King Kong and stuff. And he, he really wanted to pop his career with a Superman movie the same way he did with a Batman movie, which turned out to be a big success. Right. And Kevin Smith interviews a guy named Basil. I didn't catch his last name. There's a lot of talking heads in this movie. Yeah. We meet a lot of concept artists in this movie, which is actually their input into the background of this and what was going on behind the scenes. And the fact that we see loads of concept art, that's Probably one of my favorite parts yeah. of the movie. Same here. That that and the costume design, those were the two yeah. most interesting aspects. 
and everyone had a lot to say about it too. Everyone had like their own weird angle into what worked and what didn't. And looking at all these, I mean, I think in most any movie out there, whether it becomes a success or a failure, you can pretty much guess that bet, especially if it's like a more of a sci-fi angle or a fantasy angle, that the concept art is going to be often be better than what you end up seeing on the oh, screen. Hands down. Uh, is it normal to have that many concept artists on a movie? Gosh, I don't know. It seemed like there was a lot of things yeah. that weren't normal <laughs> in the going into this movie. I mean, I can understand, you know, as as the direction of the movie sort of changed over time, I can understand bringing on different concept artists, but there's going to be like a lot of concept artists all working at once, each with their own sort of vision, but all sort of trying to give Tim Burton what he was asking for. So that's just seemed odd to me. It's like, how do you get anything done yeah. with that many people? Sometimes it just don't happen, no matter how much you want it to. There was a writer before Kevin Smith. He got a script and he was asked to rework it. I didn't catch the original writer. Gregory Poirier, I think that's how you pronounce his name. But the movie was called Superman Reborns. And Kevin read this script and he was supposed to do Punch-Up and he was like, look, first of all, that title, no, change it to Superman Lives. This is one of the few things that Kevin brings to it that it becomes what it is throughout the rest. And he talks about how there was a scene where Superman talks to like a, a psychiatrist, like a shrink, and he confesses that he's Superman and the shrink doesn't believe him. Like some kind of like weird, like, what is Superman kind of thing going on? But Kevin encounters John Peters. And so Kevin punches up the script, meets with John, who's the big producer on here. And like you said, he's Barbara Streisand's former hairdresser turned producer. And John has some rules <laughs> with what he wants this Superman movie to be. He said, no flying. <laughs> Number one, no flying. <laughs> Number two, no suit. He doesn't like that suit. <laughs> so basically, no Superman. <laughs> yeah. And three, most important of all, I think, to John, he wanted him to fight a giant spider. I think that's my favorite out of all the bullet points. Because he, <laughs> he described the giant spiders or the spider one of the fiercest predators on the planet. John is obsessed with fighting and masculinity. So he seems to like sight a lot of animals. Like this looks so cool. He's almost like a, like a, if an eight year old had too much money and controlled things too much. Read this to me. Like if the kid who bullied you in the in the seventh grade had a lot of money and was allowed to just do whatever he wanted with your favorite things. <laughs> that that costume is gay. <laughs> the spider's not big enough. John Peters denies saying no flying and no suit. I don't know. Now, Kevin Smith can be kind of, you know, it ain't hard getting Kevin Smith for an interview. So he'll say a lot of things freely. But I cannot find my, whenever John Peters denies something. He's a hard guy to believe. Yeah, I don't believe. <laughs> Why would you? <laughs> Oil just drips off of him just from his pores. And so Kevin takes these rules. I don't know how he's making it work. He has to. <sighs> Be like, dude, he's got to wear his, his fucking suit. It's Superman. What do you mean he can't fly? I mean, there's a, the earliest iteration of Superman, he leapt. Right. And in those old cartoons, uh, he, I think he the was- Flagship like, stuff. But yeah, the flagship. But no one, I mean, unless you're a hardcore comic book nerd, no one knows that. That's true. I mean, his whole catchphrase is- But they came with that leaping thing. Conceptually, they held on to that leaping thing throughout the pre-production of this yeah. movie. And they were kind of describing- 
how they wanted them to be like jumping like three miles at a time. It seems like they kind of flip flopped him. At one point, he was gonna, he wasn't gonna fly. Then he was gonna fly. Yeah, and he was back to jumping, leaping buildings again. I think modern origin tellings of Superman it kind of shows him jumping and then eventually learning how to fly. We meet a lot of concept artists. Uh, Timbergard, I think, is one of the first ones, and he illustrates uh, because Kevin makes the giant spider and he calls it the Thanagarian snare beast. <laughs> and at one point, Kevin will be kicked off of this project, but the concept of the Thanagarian snare beast will stick around. That's his other major con- contribution <laughs> to the project. Thanagar <laughs> references. Uh, uh, the planet that the Hawkman stuff comes from. It's right. Like, it has alien origins. So Thanagar <laughs> is like a planet in the DC universe. And you can tell that that is like a fanboy nerd writer's contribution. Oh, to totally. Him. He just wanted to slip that in. I think it was a lot harder to find kind of stuff like that in those movies back in the day. Because as good as like the first Batman was, Batman Returns was shit. I watched that recently. It was like, what the fuck is going on in this <laughs> I don't movie? know, man. Danny DeVito, his weird performance in that movie, I enjoy. Completely separate from the movie itself. And, and, I, and Michelle Pfeiffer is Catwoman. I mean, the movie looks as good as the first one did, if not a little better. Story-wise, it's like a shit show. Oh, totally. That makes zero sense. Well, Timbergard illustrates the Thanagarian snare beast. And his drawing looks like a big vagina, which is letting out. Thank you so much for saying that. Because <laughs> it never came up in the documentary. And I was like, come on, man. And we all see this. And it's Giger inspired. So that's like, it's kind of a way of him saying it without saying it, that this looks like genitalia. Because Giger had a, he drew a lot of things that look like <laughs> dicks and shit like that. <laughs> But this story was going to be loosely translated from the death of Superman's story. And that, that comic came out when? 93? Yeah. And Superman's sales were lagging quite a bit. And some writers at the time, they interviewed Dan Jurgens, who, who was a big writer at that time with other people. Uh, Louise Simonson was another one. Superman's sales were down, so they came up with the death of Superman's story. And it became... One of the biggest selling comic books of all time when Superman died. It made the news. It was everywhere. It was everywhere. If you ever get a chance, uh, not to bring another documentary into the discussion about this documentary, but there is a about an hour and a half long documentary on the Superman Doomsday animated, the direct DVD animated oh, yeah. feature they did that talks about that whole process. I think I've seen that. It's a really it actually made me appreciate that storyline more and go back and read it and look at it differently because they interviews all those creators with their Superman Summit they do every year. Was that when they, Louise Simonson was talking about the funeral for the friend story yeah. and she gets choked up? Yeah. 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 I got a little choked up myself. Yeah, just yeah. Watching she, that really, part. she really sold it. Like, yeah. It wasn't the actual death of Superman was pretty brainless. It was the aftermath. But the was aftermath really cool. was, yeah, where all the emotions kind of came in. Yeah, but it was a huge thing. It seems obvious that it might, that the concept would be option for a movie. But apparently in Kevin's script, people like characters like Deadshot, who maybe you've seen Suicide Squad, that's Will Smith's character. Batman uh, appears in the script. After Superman dies, Batman comes on to like a large, like a Times Square TV screen. That's the best. And consoles <laughs> all of Metropolis. People of Metropolis, <laughs> you may have lost your hero. When I was a teenager, I was, a, I was a big fan of Kevin Smith. And he wrote some comics later in his career that at the time I really liked. But when you get insights into Kevin Smith and what he's contributing to this script, it sounds wild because, like, maybe I do want to see this. This sounds fucking nuts. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of Kevin Smith's material is what works in, like, 1996 
does not hold up very strong in, you know, Kevin Smith's work does not have a timeless tone to it. No, not at all. He seems very much to be a man of this time. When we're talking about 90s culture, a lot of what Kevin Smith was doing was alluding to a lot of what would become very popular later on in terms of all the things he likes. Because he's also, not only is he a director, but he's kind of made a career of talking about geek stuff. And now geek stuff is pretty big. You That's know? essentially what he does now. I think he does yeah. that more than anything else. And he does and he does make movies sometimes. I've seen Red State, and I couldn't tell you a second of a frame of that movie. I think I've completely forgotten. I don't even think I've heard of that. Yeah, he did a movie called Red State and another that Angela scene where a guy turns into a walrus. Man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He's still doing things sometimes. Is this all part of the View Askew universe? <laughs> I'll just assume, yeah. I know he made Clerks 2, which was... Oh, it was a horseshit movie. What a, yeah, yeah. And Chasing Amy, and it seems like even those earlier movies, it's like, we're, we're getting this guy's... We're getting Kevin Smith relationship advice in a lot of these movies. And there's a lot of like uh, uh, attempts at being really profound and really insightful. And there's a lot of dumb, funny shit, which I think is what he does best, like like goofy teenage humor. But when he tries to be poignant, it's like, oh, dude. there's a lot of speechifying and chasing Amy. Yeah. I mean, wasn't he dating Joey Lauren Adams at that time or they had just broken up or something like that? I, do, I have no idea. I can't. I can't remember. But that was the days when. When Ben Affleck would be in your movie. It'd be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when they used to be friends. You can imagine that. I mean, Ben Affleck is now this mega star. But yeah, he and Kevin Smith and what's that dude that's the skateboarder guy, Scientologist, who was in all his movies too. He was in My guy, Name so. is Earl. Oh, uh, Jason Lee. Jason Lee, yeah. 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 You didn't know he was a Scientologist? Oh, yeah, I knew he was a Scientologist. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. I just want to check in. I always like to proclaim when someone's a Scientologist. You should. The world needs to know. That's a segment. Are. That's our new segment, Scientology Watch. <laughs> Today's episode, Beck. John Peters admits, I'm not a reader. Probably could have guessed it. And so Kevin reads him the script. Apparently John has people do this a lot. He lays down and Kevin says he puts his fingers like a frame, like, a, like it'd be a movie frame, in front of his face. You know, John Peters is just like a dipshit with too much money. It really it's um, honestly, I feel like he is... He's still a hairdresser, just yeah. pretending to be a yeah. producer. And he's managed to bullshit his way and do a lot of successful movies. But, I mean, really, the the frame, the finger frame, do people actually even do that? I mean, is that a thing that real directors or producers do? <laughs> and why would a producer need to do that? Despite my criticisms of Kevin Smith, I believe him when he tells these stories. I don't doubt it. So, yeah, I think John really does do that. And he really is a jagoff. <laughs> With a fantastic head of hair. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> now, Kevin's reading the script and John's like, it's too boring. And he suggests, um, and there's a scene where Brainiac, the villain Brainiac, is, appears. And John suggests <laughs> to spice things up. At first, I guess Brainiac's at the Fortress of Solitude, Superman's Arctic base, where he goes to be alone. And John's like, why don't you have, like, guards? <laughs> Uh, fighting Brainiac. Like, Superman has guards. And Kevin's like, why would Superman need guards? Well, Superman has robot guards, right? I mean, I don't know. But, and so, uh, John suggests, like, well, look, how about he fights some uh, polar bears? There's nothing more fierce. <laughs> There's nothing more fierce than polar bears. Where does his animal knowledge come from? <laughs> he loves animals. <laughs> I wonder if, I bet it takes him a long time to walk through a zoo, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> they always I mean, tell us that everyone. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know that polar bears are very fierce animals, but they're also on a can of Coke during the holidays. <laughs> like, yeah, right. I can't see them as the most. Yeah, I know, right? Like, uh, yeah, those those adorable bolt polar I mean, I don't bears. I know they rip into a seal or a walrus without <laughs> you know batting an eye, but. There's got to be something else that's more ferocious. The director talks about how he read one script where the bears were like statues or something. Like there had been so many iterations of this script. And then Kevin suggests they haven't decided on a director yet. And Kevin goes, why don't you get uh, Tim Burton? He's He brought Batman into the fold. Why not uh, get him to kind of do the same thing for Superman? It was a good idea on Kevin's part. But there was a little naivety into the Hollywood game because that pretty much would negate Kevin's presence because there's no Kim, Kevin Smith and Tim Burton movie. Yeah. There's a Tim Burton movie. Right. In the people <laughs> that he likes. I mean, John says that Kevin's script was real amateur. And I'm, I'm sure in some ways it probably was. I mean, was. he was still early in his career. But it was. But I could imagine that Kevin's script, I mean, arguing Kevin's behalf a little bit, would have a lot more, would probably have resonated a lot more to a core fan base. And also probably was pretty creative and imaginative. And I'm sure he did put a lot of like heart and mind into that script. He seems excited about everything. So why wouldn't he be excited? Yeah, I mean, he says like he just ran with it. I mean, he was like, he wasn't even there. He was at a meeting and he wasn't even there for that he was there for something else uh and some they mentioned superman and he was like let me write that yeah because why not why wouldn't you write write superman if you have the opportunity so i'm sure he was very enthusiastic about it so then schnepp meets tim burton and that's where the schnepp interviews are side by side with tim burton like a like the shot is pulled back on both of them tim burton's wearing his shades he seems still really uh bitter about the whole experience which i mean i can understand i feel like that may have been his his one property, his movie that he really wanted to do and was really excited about yeah. and just didn't pan out. I think once the the process of Superman Lives got going, he was getting legitimately excited about it. Yeah, because originally, didn't he say that directing a superhero movie was like Chinese water torture? Yeah, he, he didn't have a, He saw the Batman experience as just him teaching him how to deal with the industry and how to make it work. With the first Batman movie and the second, visually at least, that he did kind of, he was able to strike that balance like with his own style and something that did work for, you know, comic book fans and shit. And we meet a guy named Michael Anthony Jackson. We'll call him Michael Jackson. Of course, we we have to. He's a concept artist and he is signed on to work for an upcoming movie called The Matrix. A little little small indie movie. Yeah, a little movie that maybe you've heard of. (laughs) But he bails to do... Superman lives. And there's all kinds. There's Sylvain. There's Billy Bowes. Uh, Jacques Ray. There are, they talked to tons of concept artists. Jim Carson, Jack Johnson, Harold Belker. It's a lot of, a lot of people. Steven Johnson, Colleen Atwood. They work on the costuming part of it. That's my favorite part of this movie is getting to see all this concept art and seeing it from that perspective. It shows you like, wow, this really would have been a very different Superman movie. You're not sure if it would end up being a good movie or a bad movie, but it would have been memorable if they actually made this movie. I think we can all agree on that. (laughs) (laughs) That means I kind of wish they made it. I mean, as the movie progressed, I found myself wanting to see that movie more and more, but wanting to see specific pieces from different versions of the movie as time passed. Yeah. Because it turned out 
for the most part, every single instance would have been a shit show. But if you took, I think, certain elements from each different phase over the two and a half, three years that was in pre-production, it could have been a really cool movie. We did end up getting the death and resurrection of Superman in film we over did. the course of two movies. We sure did. In two movies that I, that can only be described as movies. They were committed to film, and you can watch them. <laughs> yeah, they're viewable to anyone who can see. Ah, movie. Colleen Atwood, who does the costuming for this movie. This is the first movie of this type that she was really getting into. Earlier credits involve Edward Scissorhands, Little Women, Ed Wood, which is my favorite Tim Burton movie. Cabin Boy, of all things. <laughs> Would you like to buy a monkey? No, I don't want to buy a monkey. Are you sure? <laughs> In Philadelphia. I mean, you, yeah. you really couldn't get a more weird combination <laughs> of movies. She comes up with some interesting concepts. Her with some other designers come up with some things that you never would have seen in a movie up until that point. They were working on this resurrection suit. It was going to have lasers in it. It was the suit that was going to bring Superman back from the brink. Which, I mean, which is pretty faithful to... The comic. I mean, yeah. memory serves. I mean, at some point he gets into some chamber or something. That he gets put into a chamber that has some sort of. I feel like he wears. A, it's been a long time since I've read that story, but I feel like he wears some sort of suit. I think it might be that black suit. Yeah. That sort of like helps him absorb yeah. more solar, more yellow sun radiation to get back to full power or something like comic that. booky stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Science. Tim Burton, of course, he dumps Kevin's uh, script. Wesley Strick, who who has worked with Tim Burton a lot, he comes on as the screenwriter, and they decide to keep the Thanagarian snare beast. That's important. John Peters, big supporter of the Thanagarian snare beast. Did John Peters take credit for that? It sounded like he was trying to, because he just kept referring to Thanagarian. What is yeah. it again? Thanagarian? He, he remembers. Yeah, he remembered that. He and remembers. you know he has no idea what the fuck a Thanagarian yeah. is. Yeah, man. So that's how you know it wasn't his idea. Like, yeah. he may have been the spider guy, but, but he, the name came from But Kevin's the name Thanagarian <laughs> Snare Beast has been split, uh, etched into his brain right. <laughs> ever since. And he still cites it. Yeah, and he, he, he never lets it go, even after the movie. So John is, John is involved, and he's worked with Tim before, but uh, Wesley Strick, he's friends with Tim Burton. He says things that Tim would never maybe say directly, like that John working with John Peters was a giant pain in the ass. And I usually spent that time trying to avoid John Peters as much as possible. And there was no way I was going to do more Batman movies if John Peter was going to be involved, because he's a complete pain in the ass. But John Peters... I think more in his head that he and Tim are, uh, were a big duo of movie-making <laughs> dynamo back in those days. But John starts talking about how it was his idea to cast Michael Keaton, and everyone jeered it and hated it, and all the fanboys bitched about it. But then when Michael Keaton showed up, that it worked out and people really liked it. And it was also his idea to bring on Tim Burton. That, that's, he said it was his idea for that. And Michael Keaton did, I would say, as far as, for me... The best on-screen Bruce Wayne is Michael Keaton. I agree with that assessment. But at this point, while John is bragging about what smart decisions he's made in the past... I knew, being a street fighter my whole life, that you can gauge the toughness of your opponent by the look in their eyes. This guy wants you to respect his masculinity so hard. Look, man, don't underestimate him. John wanted Nick Cage because John saw Nick Cage as a guy from the streets, man. Yeah, yeah, that look on his face, <laughs> that toughness. Yeah. He might not have been the most attractive guy, which he was very quick to point out about both him and Michael Keaton. 
I'm sure they appreciated that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're not that good looking, but, but they're immensely talented. But they're masculine. They're manly. Exactly. They're man's man. They're from the streets, man. <laughs> they also wanted a cast for Lois Lane. They had a list. Sandra Bullock, I think, was the big one. I saw Mira Sorkin. They show a list. That, oh, dude, that list. Well, I, Did you look at the list? I saw Mira Sorvino. Who else was on that list? Well, I was thinking of the Jimmy Olsen Oh, uh, Chris Rock, yes. But did you see the other names that were on the list? There were two different categories. There was just the non-label category. <laughs> right. And then Blibita said, if black. If black. <laughs> then they had Savion Glover, the tap dancing guy. Okay. Okay. And of course, Chris Rock, which I think was the front runner. Yeah. And yeah. Marlon Wayans was the other guy. I think would have made more sense than Chris Rock. You think so? I, I guess it depends on... I got to remember how young Chris Rock was at that time. I keep picturing Chris Rock now. Maybe if they want to go a sticky route, Marlon could play maybe a little harder that way. Yeah, which that's what Jimmy Olsen pretty much was up to that point. But they had Paul Rudd on the list, Matthew Perry, Balthazar Getty, Tom Everett Scott. I mean, it was a pretty extensive list of Jimmy Olsen candidates. But I think they decided on Chris Rock. According to Chris Rock, yes. Yeah, who was bragging on the set of Dogma, which was a movie directed by Kevin Smith. It is my favorite Kevin Smith movie. Really? Yeah. Mine is Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, because it doubles down on what was goofy and dumb about Kevin Smith oh, movies. I, I, I couldn't with that movie. Oh, dude. It's the best one, because it is unapologetically what it is. It's not like the other movies where he's trying to like be smart and pontificate sensitively about something. <laughs> I'm not trying to make a statement. Jay and Silent Bob at least was dumb for the sake of dumb. And I think he does that better than, I don't know, trying to teach us something. Did that come before Clerks 2 or after? Oh, Clerks 2 was way after. Clerks 2 was a sign that I was like, maybe it's time to move on. Yeah. Jersey Girl. I never saw it. Don't. Okay. (laughs) Other casting choices was Christopher Walken as Brainiac, which would have been cool. That would have been awesome. And they had Kevin Spacey. Known for being a professional creep, uh, he had he was the long pick as Luther, and that was one of the few casting choices that survived into the Brian Singer, who also is not without his own accusations. Yes, this is very true. Uh, into the Brian Singer version of Superman and Superman Returns. All the Nick Cage footage we see in this movie is him trying on the suit. It'll feel a little looser the more I wear it. Yeah, it's really tight. But this is great. Look at that. But you can find online. You can find all this shit. Tim and Nick getting pumped up about it and all you can see so much of Nicolas Cage in the Superman suit focus on the ones where he looks high as fuck those are my favorite ones but he tries on this version of the suit that's like this uh weird almost like a one-piece swimsuit kind of thing and they're hating it they're hating it but then they do this process called vacuum forming that forms like a clear bubble over the layers of the suit it kind of helps emphasize muscle, but also allows for another level where you can insert like your laser and your lights and stuff to show that regenerative process that they wanted the suit to show. And we see some Tim Burton concept art, which he's a good cartoonist. Yeah, he does concept art for all of his movies, and a lot of it's pretty cool. And he was really focusing hard on this spider brainiac concept. I think they called it the Edward Supermans when like his doodles. <laughs> Nick when he's in the suit, he goes into another, the next version of the suit, and it's more like a chrome latex version. And we see a final version where they show him with the full S and the cape, where they're walking around a hotel room, talking oh, yeah. about how it fits, yeah. how it bends. And he's got the long hair. I don't think Nick had long hair at the time they put that on him. He's talking about how he likes the long hair. And then they're questioning everything. He's like, well, what about the cape? Maybe we could ditch the cape. 
maybe we can keep long hair. Long hair Superman was a thing in the comics right after he came back. He had long hair, which half the time just looked like a mullet. It was horrible. Yeah. It was pretty, none of the fans liked it. Nick Cage complains about what every Hollywood executive who's tried to make a Superman movie has ever complained about and producers is that Superman wears his underpants on the outside. Why? Why does he do that? He looks ridiculous. Now, we have more of a context in the Superman. Yes. It's not just about his powers to us or what he looks like. It's about who Superman is and what makes him historically a big deal hero. I think for me, I like the underpants on the outside because I like a Superman that always has some level of an aw shucks quality. And I think the little underpants on the outside kind of helps bring that about. Absolutely. I mean, people forget that Superman was created during the era of the strong guy. Mm. sort of thing. I mean, that's where that costume comes from is the, the underwear. That's those guys who were lifting the huge barbells. Yeah. And that's where that whole thing comes from. And you're right. It does. People are always trying to tinker. Superman's one of the most difficult characters mm. to bring to real world, to bring real world sensibilities to. Because when you start to do that, you start, the more you do it, the more you start to lose the essence of what makes the character what he is, what everyone loves about him. And that's, that's a whole other discussion about where we're at right now with that character cinematically. Yeah. Um, but people will always want to run away from that. But then at the same token, you had someone like Brian Singer who ran toward that. And I mean, that wasn't the greatest movie. It wasn't as horrible as I remember it being going back and watching it. No, no, I, don't, I just, I mean, there's a few plots in that movie that I was like, you didn't need that. You can take all that out. Yeah. For me, there was a lot to like in that movie. I liked the, I forget the actor's name, but I liked the guy who played Superman. Brandon Ralph. Yeah. Currently, I think he's still playing the Adam yeah, on he, uh, all the CW. He's on CW yeah. DC shows, yeah. which those show, most of those shows are better than the movies. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> which is so sad. Nick says he sees this movie like they're making a fairy tale. And so they take the stone Nick Cage pictures of him in the costume. Certain pictures are better than others, but I think all in all, he doesn't look that bad in the suit. I mean, the more when you see it more in the context, I mean, that one that everyone that sort of talk about, the one that everyone knows about, it's just a bad picture. But when they really, you know, and it was also still fairly early in the creation of the suit and you watch as you learn more about the costume design and that whole process. It actually turns out to be not a bad looking suit at no, all. And plus, no. you know, the people not understanding the context of, you know, one suit is specifically supposed to be the regeneration suit. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people thought that that was going to be the actual Superman oh, costume right, right. he'd be wearing throughout the movie, uh, which that's, you know, that's always the danger of when stuff leaks out pre-productions. People don't have any context to it. What's the max budget of this movie at one point? They were talking 200 yeah, Plus, I think I heard 300 million, million at yeah. some point. And I think a lot of this started at about 30 million. Yeah, I mean, this is what, 1998? I mean, that's a lot of money now. I think this all started in 96. Right. And I think it did take some time for it all to crash and burn. The funny part is a lot of that original concept art for Brainiac ended up coming to fruition in other versions of that character. Oh, yeah. But that spider Brainiac... They actually used that in the Batman animated series. It um, looked cool as shit. It, it looked really cool. And they brought in a lot of European artists, European comic artists, who have different sensibilities than American art. And it seemed like they hired those guys specifically for that reason. Their concepts of Krypton, some hard sci-fi oh shit. God, yeah. The ideas and the imagination that were behind all of that. I kind of like this idea. In the comics, Krypton 
they do like very small things to make it look alien, but it all still seems somewhat familiar. That contrast of Earth and what was designed in those Krypton designs would have just been so huge. Um, those, uh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't remember which concept artist it was. Uh, I remember specifically that he liked to draw using color on black paper. And those that sort of shifting tectonic plates version of Krypton where there are all these little pods yeah. that are underneath, like under the crevices. And like, I mean, the, the, crypt, the Kryptonian, that concept art was what blew me away the most out of all the concept art that I saw. Yeah. When they brought on the second script writer, I feel like at that point they decided they were going to not have him discover that he was even from another planet yeah. until like during the movie as an adult. Like maybe they, he thought he had a condition or yeah. something. Usually it's like by the time he's a kid, he somehow figures it right. out. But this, yeah, grown Superman who has no idea. That would, I mean, it kind of would explain why he would be the way he would be. It seems like if you know you're from another planet uh, too early in age, would you become like some I feel like you would be tyrant? more inclined to become. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But John, uh, he's being interviewed by Schnapp, but the interview is interrupted. His father <laughs> is like, this may be my favorite part of the documentary. When it when Krypton blew up, hold on a second, just a second, pause for a second. Hello, I'm in the middle of this interview. What do you need? Yeah, do it, do it, do it. Okay. Hello. Let me just take this one thing real quick. All right. Everybody has heard about the guy. Uh, my guys know all about him. I would love to have lunch with him if you could set that up. Yeah. How much money did you guys raise for him? So I could put some in there if I wanted to? Okay. All right, I love you. Set this up for me. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks. Bye. Sorry about that. I love you. Set this up for me. <laughs> John Peters talks about with all the designs and stuff going on, he didn't like all the weirdness, and he wanted a ship. This guy, he doesn't care about any, how hard anyone works. And he's not like a guy who's really providing that much guidance. He just sees something and goes, no. And on a whim, he could just be like, I want the ship to be like a skull ship. I saw it on the cover of a National Geographic. I thought it looked really awesome. Yeah, skulls are cool. Skull ship. Kids love skulls. Skulls are masculine. <laughs> skulls are the fiercest predators in the animal kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> and the skull ship was supposed to have a monster zoo, like a menagerie. I'm actually impressed somehow in his weird, stunted adolescent brain without, as far as I know, ever reading much as far as Superman comics is concerned, he actually did grab something from the comic yeah, randomly yeah. out of the universe, yeah, which Brainiac. is the skull ship and the menagerie of creatures. Like, yeah. <laughs> it works. John Peters owns to this day in his home the, the skull ship scale model that he it's wanted. It's an awesome model, too. And John Schnepp points that out while walking around. There was no concept art that I thought was really that bad. Everything looked really cool to me. The director, John Schnepp, was very smart to let that concept art be such a strong feature of this movie because that really lets you know like what direction this stuff was trying to go. And you can decide from there if it was like, wow, that's fucking weird or wow, that would have been really cool. Yeah. And you can see why anyone would go one way or the other with it. I personally, uh, I really liked Jack Johnson, that guy, which his concept art really wasn't <laughs> had anything to do with the costumes or any of the ships or the aliens. His was more of just the basics of this is how Metropolis is going to sort of look. And it was these very sort of old style, elegant paintings of people attending fundraisers. And yeah, I thought that looked 
really, really cool. And then the guy who created uh, a lot of the concept designs for the Kryptonian stuff, particularly the costumes, uh, Liam Sharp, um, he did some really awesome designs of uh, that actually I feel like made it into the Man of Steel eventually. Yeah. That's sort of like real metallic alien Geiger-esque sort of Egyptian hieroglyphic in, engraved and everything. Uh, I thought his stuff was really cool too. But again, a lot of these this stuff, these concepts ended up being used in some shape or form where yeah. people realize it on a conscious level or not in other versions of the character. John Peters would come by the studio to see what the artists were working on. None of the artists liked them. They, they loved those visits. <laughs> those were the best. <laughs> they nicknamed John Peters Loudmouth. And he would come in with like kids, his own kids. They would talk about how he'd come in. He wouldn't even acknowledge the human presence of people drawing these <laughs> images. They would just come in with kids and point at pictures and be like, I like this. I don't like this. I like this. I don't like this. And John would scrap entire blocks of works. And they said that Peters would demonstrate jujitsu techniques in front of women at the offices. At one point, he put an art director in a headlock. And John Peters does not exactly deny this. He really is a, a 10-year-old yeah. bully. I mean... He could be president if you really think about it. <laughs> I'm surprised he's not in the cabinet, uh, Trump's cabinet. It's only, I mean, I'm throwing it out. It could there. happen. Peter says that he was creating an energy of a hero, something that these guys know nothing about. I'm telling you, this guy, masculinity just eats at this guy's brain like a cancer. That just burned my ass when he said that. Yeah. I mean, what part of putting bullying someone and putting them in a headlock how does that equate to the concept of being a hero? Yeah. <laughs> this guy's very confused. I don't he doesn't know he's the bully. He thinks he's he thinks he's the Superman. He doesn't understand that Superman would never just do that to somebody. Classic Lex Luthor. The villain never knows they're the villain. No, no they always think that they're what they're doing is for the greater good. And that's when he says he's been in five hundred fights. I've been in five hundred fights. I guess he's counted them. Five hundred fights. I've been in 500 fights. If that's the case, you got to figure he just decided, I'm going to stop at 500. Because I can't imagine. That, I mean, that's, that's a good round number. <laughs> and that's enough to brag about. I've been in 500 fights. No more fights for me. <laughs> Not as impressive as 503, but better than 497. Well, Warner Brothers executives, they start getting nervous because uh, the film Batman and Robin has come out. <laughs> That is classically a, an often pan movie. So Batman and Robin embarrasses the studio. It does not make the money that they expect it to make. Freeze the heroes. So Warner pulls back on the budget of this quite a bit because they are losing money. Some of the movies that they had come out with at this time, Warner Brothers put out Steel, which is about another DC Comics character starring Shaquille O'Neal. Who would have thought that that would not make the money they bought? That just, that just seemed like instant gold to me. Far down below, they didn't realize that the Steven Seagal <laughs> bubble had burst. <laughs> also, that that title could sound like a way to describe some sort of venereal disease. <laughs> they made The Postman. That's that Kevin Smith movie. It did not make a lot of money back. Kevin Smith did that movie? Oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. Kevin Costner. Kevin Smith should remake it. And that was a movie that they put a significant amount of money into, and it didn't come close to breaking even. I, yeah. mean, I think that may have been... That was kind of a back. thing with Costner movies at the time is that I think he 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 had a lot of input on the concepts of these movies. He really seemed to want to do these epic films and they just Waterworld. And they just uh, were not working out. 
And there was like a Tarzan movie out at the time. I didn't even remember that shit. I don't either. They put out a Tarzan movie and it that must have flopped hard. I don't I have no recollection. And I don't know what 187. I know it had Samuel Jackson in it, and I feel like it was a horror or maybe a suspense uh, movie. I can't remember. Exactly. Like that was I mean <laughs> And they put out Major League Back to the Miners, which sounds like a straight to DVD release, but apparently they tried to put that out in the theater and it did as what you would expect. And all of these movies lost a lot of money. So much money. Tim Burton, the studio gets him to fire his writer, and they bring on Dan Gilroy. He's the third or fourth screenwriter on this movie. And he meets with Tim, and Dan connects with the angst of what Tim's trying to bring to it. John Peters says that he that this movie was supposed to be like a love story that also showed a dark side of Superman because there's a dark side to many men. I've been in 500 fights. <laughs> I have a feeling that John Peters has done something fucking, some awful shit in his life. I'm feeling a Me Too moment. Yeah. Moment coming about him pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's some, there's some, there's some shit in his closet. I'm surprised that something hasn't come out already at this point. It seems like there's some, he's reacting to something. You know, I did not Google John Peter's name. Let me just do that real quick. <laughs> Let's see what, what's John Peters. Let's see. Okay. I just looked up John Peters. I looked at it as well. Uh, he There's a January 12, 2017 article. So he hasn't been discussed that much. He says that I am the Trump of Hollywood. That's the title of the article. Really? From Hollywood Reporter. There's a lot of old shit. Actually. He was an executive producer on Man of Steel. Yeah, I figured. He was banned from the Man of Steel set by Christopher Nolan. It's <laughs> pretty interesting. Industrial Light Magic comes out to work on some flying effects. They look pretty good. I was pretty impressed with those. And there, But there's a part where, and maybe this is a John Peters thing, where Superman fights ninjas. And <laughs> Michael Jackson, the, the, the guy who was going to be the Matrix artist, passed it up. Uh, he can't remember why Superman was fighting ninjas, but Superman was. Did you notice the concept art? Did you look at the, the, yes, look at the concept yeah. art? It was a lot of Superman looking like, why am I having to do this? <laughs> like a lot of like spinning around and ninjas just flying off of him or then swords cracking over the top of his head. It's What's the point yeah. of this scene? Yeah. <laughs> Kevin Smith is scouting a building in Pittsburgh, but finds out that a movie already has a bid on it. Superman Lives movie. So Kevin crosses paths with it again. Are you fucking kidding me, man? And there's a reenactment. Now, in the very beginning, we see a silhouette actor Superman walking around a graveyard. And this is the first time we see that actor, and he's just pretending to die. They're redoing the death of Superman. I don't know how necessary that was. It seemed a little inconsistent. There was no emotional impact. Like, I don't even understand what the point of the scene was that couldn't have been accomplished with just showing pictures from the comic unnecessary. And just real quick, I have to give this documentary props for introducing the thing with two heads to general public knowledge, because if you've never seen that movie, it's like an old sci-fi movie. It's an old sci-fi slash black exploitation movie with Rosie Greer, a former NFL football player who became an actor. And I used that word actor in the <laughs> right. sense of the word who, if memory serves, it's uh, this racist white guy gets killed, and to save his life, they attach his body 
to the black body of Rosie Greer, <laughs> still having Rosie Greer's head. So the whole movie is a series of really poorly shot to stick the guy's head through a hole in a coat, <laughs> just saying racist shit to Rosie Greer. How many uh, Clint Howards would you give that movie? Oh, how many can I? What's the max? Well, the the Werner the Herzog system requires two people rating it. And I haven't seen it, so you can only give your one through five Clint okay. Howards. I, I got to go. Oh man, I gotta go five. Wow, it's, five Clint Howard movie. Have to see this movie. Wow, okay. It's, it's <laughs> now I'll watch it and I'll give it my Clint Howard's, and that will be inscribed the rating. <laughs> but we see some reenactment, and uh, the writer talks about how Superman is angsty. He kind of wants to die. The exact same time where he's reworking the script, Princess Diana dies. God bless Texas. And John Peters says, you got to come over. And they're watching news footage post-Diana dying. Can you imagine how awkward that felt <laughs> sitting in his huge house watching footage of the death of Francis Diana? And, and Peters is like, you got to write down everything they're saying. <laughs> everything they're saying. So the suit is done. They do camera tests with Cage. A lot of it looks pretty good. I thought so. And then the movie studios... Studio execs, they're not brave people. They're not the creative forces. There's something that one of the artists in this movie, one of the concept artists pointed out. The truth is that highly creative people have a very hard time getting their vision done in a Hollywood system. I think he said he threatened to throw an executive out the window upon the cancellation of this movie. That sounds about right. That's a, I, 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 that might be one of the most believable things John Peter says. That he threatened to throw someone at. You put him in a headlock. He put so much of his his heart into it. And Tim Burton acknowledges that it was very painful to work so long on something and it did not happen. But Warner Brothers, they want to put, they got another movie that's coming down the pike that they want to push hard. And that's Wild Wild West. Wild Wild West. Starring uh, Will Smith. When I roll into the Wild Wild West. Who was the guy at the time. When I stroll into the Wild Wild West. This was when Will Smith would put out a movie and it would be easily number one. Every he was time. like Mr. No, they call him Mr. Fourth of July. It was like every Fourth of July weekend. There was yeah. a Will Smith movie coming out for a few years. And in that movie, no, I barely remember that movie. Oh, I need to see it again. <laughs> I was one of those people who actually was excited about it and went to go see it in the theater. <laughs> it had it had it had three elements that were enough for me to go see it. One was Will Smith, who again was the big guy the at the time. The biggest guy at the time. And you know, we're only really allowed to have one major black actor at a time in That's this country. Right. So he was the guy. Uh, number two, Salma Hayek was in it. Oh, right. So I was very much a big, I'm still a big Salma Hayek fan, but hormonally I was probably the biggest fan at that point. I, I know you're also a very intense Kevin Klein fan. One of the most intense Kevin Klein fans on the planet. I, I am. Uh, <laughs> Half a Kevin Smith body pillow that I had custom made. <laughs> Kevin Smith. I mean, Kevin Klein. Oh God, he just wears his, his friggin' yeah. Mouth. Kevin Smith hit everywhere. By the time Kevin mentions Tim Burton, he just shows up very sparingly in this movie. But on their last interview, this is an anecdote about the the making of this documentary. They wrapped up the interview with him, and then everyone went home. And they came back to the offices the next day, where they had people come and guests to shoot. And when they were opening it up. They heard a voice. They're like, what's going on? And they go into the room where they were shooting with Kevin the previous day. He'd never left that room. And he had been talking nonstop about his time writing Superman Lives that whole time. 
he didn't even know the camera was off. It was like he didn't even acknowledge that no one was in the room anymore. And they showed up the next day, and he was still talking about the times. Is this an actual writing. thing? Yeah. Did I, was this after the credits? Because I didn't watch after the credits of... There was a uh, Tim Burton thing at the very end. Oh, okay. But yeah, Kevin Smith, they were like, dude, the camera has not been on for hours. Kevin, it's over. They had to snap him out of it. He just was... For, and for the record... The number three reason why I went to go see Oh right. Wild Wild West. Cisco. Cisco. That song, man. <laughs> the Wild Wild West. It was a very when I roll into the I was still I was just jamming out to that song in my car like three weeks. That was a big hit. It's on my phone right now. I can play it for you right now. Wow. Yeah. I mean it's not like I'm obsessed with it, but you know, it's a it's a fun song. Guess what's in that movie? A big mechanical spider. He got his spider. Including uh, Kenneth Branagh with mech spider legs. Very steampunk. Uh, there's interviews with Cage. He, he does lament not getting to make Superman. Says that's one of the most precious icons. We don't have to make the movie, but somehow the story of that movie is still interesting to people. And that's true. Hence why we have this documentary. John Peters points out, honestly, that... Would it have done the numbers? Maybe not. I don't know if this movie would have been good or not, but I think people would have showed up to this movie. It depends on, I think, what phase you where you're at in the actual production. Like, by the time it got to phase three with the, with the fourth writer, there were some things about it that I liked, but at the same time, they were also cutting back on the budget. So if they had gone forward with making this movie, it would have been with a limited budget. And it just there's no way there's it would no have way. the vision, whatever... Tim Burton and the other artists had like there's no way they would have been able to do any of that and make it look good. But if they committed to it, the biggest thing I liked about the script that they or their version of Superman was the idea of basically Clark Kent being kind of a schlub. Have you ever seen a report like an investigative reporter? I mean, they're I mean, granted, I've only seen them in movies and TV shows, but they're generally portrayed as <laughs> schlubs, they're, you know, chain smoking, trench coat wearing. So it makes sense to me. That he would be, especially if they're going to go with this whole, he doesn't know where he's really from his entire life and being obsessed with finding out what's wrong with him, what he perceives is what's wrong with him. That would make you into a fairly, I would think, a kind of an antisocial, maybe laser focused and good at being an investigative journalist. But you wouldn't be wearing a three piece suit and a fedora and being, you know, bumbling, stumbling over things all the time. Yeah. And but all that was like a put on uh, Christopher Reeve embodied that when he was Clark and did a really good job. I mean, we just lost Margot Kidder not too long I ago. Know, yeah. And if you go back of those first two Superman movies, just their interactions as Clark and Lois, there's genuine chemistry and charm in those scenes. That Absolutely. You just are not getting from Superman movies these days. And uh, yeah, it's just they have not for some reason, been able to sex to successfully recreate that as well. Even in the the Superman Returns, which has some good things, it doesn't really hit that no. very well no, there. The either. biggest thing for me is it commits the cardinal sin of being boring. Yeah. It's not a very exciting movie. I mean, there's not much happening action-wise. And we're finally, we're finally at a point, like special effects-wise, with technology had progressed where they could have done some really cool stuff with Superman physically mm. being Superman 
versus hitting a rock. Or I mean, it, I just feel like they they dropped the ball. Lex Luthor, Kevin Spacey could have been great. There were elements of Kevin Spacey in there that I wanted to see him bring out in Lex Luthor, but it kept slipping back into the Gene Hackman sort of Lex Luthor. Yeah, which is done on purpose, it seems like. Well, I mean, Brian Singer was a self-admitted Richard Donner fan and was mm-hmm. a huge fan of those movies and this was basically an homage to those movies essentially they hit the personalities right but yeah they just it they should have had more and take the fucking kid out of it no one oh, fucking God. cares about the kid. i will still watch that movie over man of steel though yep me too hands down yeah i do think it's better than that so the director says to tim burton any final thoughts why are you trying to depress me so much? Does any anybody got any cyanide or anything I can take? And that's pretty much the end of the movie. Yeah. And he says, you know, ask me when I'm 90 years old. Yeah. We're still going to get it made. Yeah. I mean, he's obviously still, I was really surprised that he even sat down and talked about this movie because he's not really known for being forthcoming about his experiences and his feelings about things. He's, yeah. he's always been sort of that kind of guy who, not necessarily an, an elusive mystery. I mean, he does do some interviews. Right. But on this, especially on this level, this low-budget, fan-funded documentary yeah. about something that was obviously a, still a very painful sort of subject for him to talk about, I was really surprised that he sat down mm. for that long to talk about it in that much depth. So, But that was the movie, The Death of Superman Lives. What happened? <laughs> By John Schnepp, Akil. We don't rate in... The star rating scale. You don't say, Robert. Throw that out the window. The star rating scale is like a leaping Superman. But the Herzog rating scale is like a John Peters full flight Superman uh, got nerds into a headlock. (laughs) Throwing people out windows. Fight number 501. I've been in 500 fights. He's starting back up again. You can't keep a good hairdresser down. We rate in the Herzog rating scale. You're going to give this one through five Herzogs. I'm going to give this one through five Herzogs. Morph together like Lex Luthor and Brainiac into one mm. best out of ten Herzog Good film. metaphor. Akil, what did you think of this movie? The Death of Superman Lives. Uh, palms up in the air, hands out. What happened? <laughs> by John Schnepp. Well, this was the second time I viewed it. Like like you, I saw it pretty much around when it first came out. And I've actually owned it since then. And this this episode gave me a chance to sort of revisit it again. It is, it's not the most exciting of documentaries. It does drag on at certain points. I, I'm not a big fan of the documentarian appearing throughout the documentary. That's kind of one of those things that annoys me a little bit. Very much enjoyed the fact, like you mentioned, that there's a lot of behind the scenes talk with the concept. The concept art, hands down, was that and the costume stuff. Like that was the biggest thing for me but that being said i feel like this documentary would only be interesting to people who are very specifically interested in superman and the whole this whole movie this whole con the whole concept of this movie not being made i feel like if anybody else watched it even if someone because I, I i love documentaries obviously you do too i can watch documentaries that's, about things that's what that they I, say anyway that, <laughs> it's not just a passing fad <laughs> I can watch documentaries that are about things that I might not necessarily know anything about or have any interest in. A lot of times that's the point of me watching the documentaries because I'm like, I don't really know much about that. I think I'm going to check that out. And if it's a really well done documentary, regardless of the subject matter, it's going to interest me. And I felt like this one missed that mark 
I can't I, I can't think of any other friends beyond you and maybe one other person I could think of where I could sit them down in front of this documentary and they would actually sit through it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. So because of that, because of the specificity of its audience, I'm going to give it three. Okay, yeah. I see a lot of what you're saying there. I think there is an aspect that it could pull in people who are just into like weird Hollywood stories, the way movies are made or fail to get made. I think there is an angle of that, like the John Peters interviews. That can be appreciated almost that you don't have to be a comics fan to watch the ego of this guy at work and the things he says that are ridiculous. Like you don't have to be a Superman fan to kind of laugh at the crazy shit that comes out of his mouth. But the movie does have such concentration into the concepts behind this character and trying to make a movie about this character that if you are pulled in by that kind of stuff, I can imagine parsing through a lot of like concept art and going through what Krypton would be, or what Brainiac would be, might be a little boring for a lot of for a lot of those people that might just be in it for a, a true Hollywood story. So it, it almost seems pretty half and half. And you can tell that John Schnepp is a fanboy. And I love like comic stuff. I go see all of these Marvel movies. But sometimes I feel like I'm starting to get into a bit of a, a burnout with a lot of nerd culture lately. Like I'm getting a little tired of things constantly referencing other things. And so I, but I, I won't say it's the most egregious I've heard of it, but sometimes that fanboy angle, a lot of fanboys out there might think that they could do their favorite thing better than anyone else. But in reality is no, you really can't. No. And there is a reason why things are this and things are that, why it is so hard to get these things done. I think there's a fair amount of documentary chocolate cake in this movie. I loved a lot of the concept art. The John Peter stuff was funny to me. He was the funniest element in this movie. This 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 dude's ego, the guy's dripping bullshit, everything he says, and you don't take him very seriously, or you laugh at him more than you kind of look up to the guy. But he is like this guy who managed to be a giant in the system, and I think he almost represents most of what's wrong with the Hollywood system. And I think it's interesting when you're watching the movie to think of it like that. But John Schnapp, he's done things I like. I don't, and I think he's he's more talented at telling this kind of thing than a lot of other fanboy directors would be. Absolutely. Like if this was Kevin Smith's movie, I don't think he would have made it as good as John Schnapp no, did it. No, But still there were some things that seemed a little pointless. I think, I think sometimes that set up narrative that, fanboy filmmakers want to do when making documentaries it's just unnecessary and schnepp didn't do it the worst but still it seemed a little unnecessary and you did get a lot of like a wowzers look i'm sitting with tim burton this movie pulled me in multiple directions because this is an interesting story and i did like enjoy knowing as much about it as you could and john schnepp really made sure you got a lot of information regarding sure did. this movie <laughs> But yeah, you're right. You may have to just be a big nerd to really get a lot out of it. I don't think everything is nerd-centric. I don't really think you need to be a big nerd to appreciate it. But it does help quite a bit because otherwise, unless you just like looking at cool art, uh, a lot of this stuff might bore you if you're not. I think this is right down the middle. I don't think it's going to please everybody. And I think a three out of five rating is just right. And that brings this movie to you give it three. I give it three. That's six out of 10 Herzogs. That's respectable. Six out of 10 Herzogs. Yeah. Especially for a Kickstarter funded yeah. documentary. Partially funded anyway. That's our review of The Death of Superman Lives, colon, What Happened by John <laughs> Schnepp. Six out of 10 Herzogs.
All right. What happened? Don't be like John Peters. There's don't enough. A, don't be a Peter. Don't be a Peter. <laughs> we got enough of those in the world. Be a you. I like that. Unless you is John Peters. Like a, or unless you know, jo- what John Peters is listening. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Be a you unless you is really strongly considering shooting up a school right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, don't yeah. be a you. Yeah. Or Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Keep on talking. I have to take a shit. <laughs> Speaking of shit shows. Shit. Yeah, there's a shit show in here. <laughs> so feel free to speak subliminal messages. <laughs> As Bobby takes his shit, I will continue to shop on Amazon. Actually, I've got Wikipedia pulled up right now because I was watching an episode of Star Trek Discovery this morning that mentioned... The USS Defiant from Star Trek uh, DS9. There's a Mirror Universe episode. Mirror Universe episodes are always the best Star Trek episodes. It's a two-parter, I think. I've only watched the first one. I'll probably watch the second one tomorrow. If you haven't watched Star Trek Voyager, I'm saying that like anyone is going to hear this, but not Voyager. Discovery. You should definitely check it out. It's a pretty good show. I don't know why I was looking up the USS Defiant. 